was your uh, how was your day yesterday, Stephen? Splendid. A day. Anything nice happen? A day mainly eating cake, hanging out, saying, hanging out with my buddies. <laughs> a day that will live in infamy. And then uh, nipping out in the evening for some decent food and a couple of cocktails. That's how was Australasia? Birthday. Yep, lovely, very good. Lived you up to all expectations. Did you wear a shirt? I wore a, sh- I wore a jumper over a shirt. Nice. I oh, mean, it not is February. Not I'm, not, I'm not going crazy. You're not a Geordie. No, no, quite right, quite right. Did you contemplate a jacket? You said that you might wear a jacket. I, I went full coat in the end. I think you have to heading out yeah. Heading out in town in your 40s on a Monday night. There's no need to be reckless, is there, in no. terms of and, and you appropriate layers. You mentioned it was quite quiet. You didn't want to be too ostentatious if Manchester City Centre is a little quiet. Look, when you've got two <laughs> small children and not necessarily available babysitters, you, you get out when you can. Did you just, just leave the day of Yeah, yeah, we just we left thought on the just left bad them. things don't happen on a Monday evening. No, I mean, fine. if it had been a weekend, we wouldn't leave a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. Mondays are famously... Other, but, you know, they're non-eventful, aren't they? <laughs> Mondays <laughs> are famously crime-free. Yes, crime off. Yeah. So, yeah, it worked, worked well. Well, it's like with hairdressers, isn't it? Like you, Hairdressers and barbers are always shot on a Monday because Saturday and Sunday are their busy days. Yes, well, they so often take it off. Robbers, I believe, operate in a very similar principle that, that they... <laughs> They do a lot of robbing Saturday and Sunday. So by that measure, there cannot be any crossover between robbers and hairdressers. That's why... There are none. That's why barbers aren't a particularly sort of important part of the criminal fraternity. (laughs) So basically (laughs) we're saying robbers, barbers and people that cover football for a living, they all take a day off early on in the week. Sunday journalists, yeah. Yeah? Take a Monday off. Also, um, I can add to this list, pet groomers. Is that a Monday free of pet grooming? Because Riley, who cuts Hector, is always shot on a Monday. So the fact that the, the fact that Hector's hairdresser has a name that you use and are familiar with is astonishing to me. Why? <laughs> Do you not know your barber's name? No. Do you not? No. Liam is my barber. Liam and John, my barbers. They're very good. We've mentioned Liam and John already. I have a Duncan. Who's yours? Come on, Stephen. I never think to ask. Well, that's just. I'm, I'm very, I'm very chatty, but the, the sort of like the exchange of names never really Nothing comes up. Nothing to do up. with Mondays. It's to do with a lack of manners. So, <laughs> is it just that? Is it has it narrowed on too far? Like you've you've been seeing them for too long to ask what their name is. I saw someone new. That's actually, half the office. Recently. My most recent haircut was with somebody new, so maybe it's not too late to to establish their name. I, I would say that if you don't ask in the first haircut, it's too late. All right. I'll anyway, this never is mind. drifted yes. from Steve's birthday. Just, just just so you know, he's called Rory. Hello. And you've known him for 10 years. Yeah, I picked that up after about three or four years. It's okay. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. This is the second attempt um, at doing this. My laptop failed spectacularly uh, on what was Stephen's birthday. It is now Stephen's birthday plus one, so therefore I'm indebted to others for this episode even existing, particularly uh, to Rory and to Stephen. I had an afternoon off because I am both a hairdresser and a thief. Um, when we no, met it's yesterday. Tuesday. Oh, <laughs> Early, early in the week, that's no, all I need. Both hairdressers and thieves are back um, at work. Some, some people have got to work on a Monday. They can't all <laughs> take the day off. I displaced the day. It was going to be yesterday. Now it's today. Uh, when, when we met yesterday, there was food provided. Uh, it was revealed to us ahead of time, illustrating a huge amount of prior activity by uh, Stephen. So we were offered Eggs Benedict or Royale. I think we all chose Benedict, not Royale. So, uh, Stephen... Belatedly, thank you very much indeed. It was excellent. It was was a pleasure. I wish I could have had the time and the inclination to produce it again, 24 hours on. (laughs) Ridiculous. Hang on, does this mean my joke about the chicken royale at Burger King has been lost? Yes, there is so so much excellent content, which is unfortunately on the cutting room floor. That's very sad, isn't it? Or indeed just lost somewhere 
in my laptop. Uh, incidentally, there will be evidence of the Eggs Benedict relayed via Twitter, if only for Barry Glendinning, who attempted to start something of a pod war last week by claiming that we didn't actually eat because we'd, <laughs> we'd been good enough to wait until after we podded to eat, which I think, um, for all those who suffer from misophonia, would be very grateful that happens. Well, well, Barry felt that because he didn't see evidence of food in a 40-second clip posted on Twitter, then <laughs> no food was consumed at any points during the two hours with which we were in each other's company. But I would say, given how how uh, given how conscious we are of misophonia and not wishing to upset any of our listeners, whatever they you know they they might think of listening to us eat, which I, I personally refuse to believe is anything other than deeply erotic, <laughs> I think it's not very woke of Barry to 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 suggest that we we should be eating during recording because you know musophonics, which I presume is is I, I, I assume the, so that's right the adjective. Uh, it's not an adjective. No, the, the noun. The, the noun for people who suffer from misophonia, also a noun, <laughs> uh, would be offended. And I think we're doing our best not to offend people and we're being criticised for it. That is not woke. And he works for The Guardian, so obviously he's a lefty liberal and therefore a snowflake. So should, he wouldn't want to offend anybody. Should be woker, Barry. Uh, with me, Hugh Ferris. Ah, Stephen Wyeth, demonstrably not ill. Rory Smith, only slightly ill and not Andy Hinchcliffe, absent through illness. Apparently a cold afternoon in Leicester was his undoing. So as he turns 50, he suddenly now realises that his body has limits and we shelve our extravagant birthday plans uh, for a week. Put it this way, good job the Amazon Prime subscription meant the delivery was free. Should he be recovered, we will shower him with suitable and unsuitable gifts uh, next week. So happy birthday, Chin. You do know why he got ill in Leicester, don't you? Does he, he wasn't wearing trousers. Well, it's because he bought himself that heated gilet, didn't yeah. he? But he, so he's only ever taking care of the top half of yeah. his body and he, he completely forgets to get dressed below the waist. He said to me the other day that he's too important to wear trousers. Is that right? But yeah. he did also say for the previous <laughs> match he was going to take salopettes. Yes. So maybe he overdid it in that game and then realised that shorts were the only option. No, he wasn't even wearing shorts. All was... <laughs> oh, right, OK. <laughs> Just a thong. <laughs> you know, you get to a certain age, you get comfortable with your body. Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast via at SetBeastMenu on Twitter, SetBeastMenu at gmail.com. We're on Facebook as well. Uh, last week's pod about whether trophies are just to build ego and perhaps if their allure is diminishing what can be done to improve it again, elicited a good deal of reaction, not least from Maurizio Pochettino, who spent quite a deal of time explaining those comments. Um, the reaction particularly came on Twitter. You can follow at, C- at SetPieceMenu to see a flavour of that. Uh, here are just a couple of the emails, though, that we received on the topic. Simon Bodsworth summed up uh, what a lot of you were thinking. He says this. There seemed to be a strong feeling that the FA Cup should be made more attractive to the Premier League clubs. If more take the competition seriously, the chance of the minnow coming through evaporates almost instantly, he says. As it stands, the chance of getting to a fourth round tie and making 400 grand is a realistic possibility for lower league teams. Maybe they move up a level or two in footballing terms. If you make it more attractive for the top teams in the UK by the fourth round, it's just a competition for the Premier League and the Championship. Isn't there a real chance that the 400 teams outside the Football League just lose interest? How many small clubs suddenly cease to exist? For what? So the Premier League clubs have access to a competition that earns them even more money. Don't the FA have a responsibility to keep the competition accessible to all clubs and give those lower league clubs a realistic dream of success. That from Simon Bodsworth. And it's a, it's a fair point, but the problem with that theory is that if the Premier League clubs en masse don't lose interest, the competition then loses prestige, which makes it less valuable to the television companies who broadcast it, which means that there's less money available in television rights, which means the lower league clubs suffer anyway. And the lower league clubs need the Premier League clubs there to show interest because actually their big payday comes from facing them away from home in the third and fourth round. We're not seriously talking about non-league clubs reaching what the quarterfinals because that's only happened once in about 105 years. 
those points were made uh, on yesterday's first take of the programme and the, the, the two gentlemen who I have alongside me are incredibly good at both remembering what they said but also making it slightly more efficient the second time Yeah, exactly, yes, but less funny. <laughs> yes, less funny, but that's okay. We're on a time limit. This is basically the dream scenario. <laughs> you you go at through things in your head yeah. afterwards. Say, oh, I wish I'd said it like that. Oh, I, I missed that point. I overlooked that point. Here we go. We're, also, we're, we're getting a, we're getting the opportunity to make amends. When we recorded yesterday, I had a 15-month-old on my lap who didn't want to be there. My own 15-month-old. Yes. And <laughs> he didn't just welcome just into the house. Just to be clear. Uh, and it's a lot easier to concentrate when, when there's not a, a tiny sort of ball of, of mania wandering about. Yeah, and Katie was there too, and she wasn't overly wild about our presence. So, to be honest, it's taken the pressure off everybody. But Katie did do a sterling job entertaining my son. She, well, she tried. To. She tried. He's not very easy to entertain. He is, a, yeah. as a, a former, a maniac. It took her about two hours to tidy up afterwards, actually. <laughs> the sheer volume of toys and books she she attempted to get. <laughs> tried to bribe to, 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 to try try and keep him quiet with for about 20 minutes. Katie, being the, the generous, warm soul that she is, said, what does he like? And I said, the one thing that Ed does definitely like, which is rampaging through a room and opening all of the cupboards and emptying them. That is his hobby. And yet she didn't let him do it. Strange. Yeah. Solved Outrageous. a lot of problems. Yeah, interesting seeing that that's the kitchen and it's only just been built. Uh, Eamon Dunn sent us a long message, which I've managed to uh, get down via some serious editing uh, to this comment. Your conversation this week uh, touched on something that I always find somewhat perplexing. It is regarding FA Cup giant killings and how they are perceived by media fans and pundits Pundits in the current football era, where the cup is generally considered to have lost its magic, as the saying goes. It seems to me that the football media and fans idealise giant killings of the past without particularly worrying about why the giant allowed themselves to be beaten by the killer. How exactly did Arsenal manage to lose to Wrexham, for example, back in 1992? Two ninety or was it ninety three? Ninety three. Ninety three. Uh, was it a lack of professionalism, a smug arrogance in not taking the opponent seriously? Well, I'm sure the contemporary media of the day did ask such questions. It is not something that we concern ourselves about later. Instead, we remember the glory and romance of the upset, and so it should be. But now, look at how modern giant killings are considered. Example, Everton losing to Millwall, albeit less of a shock, relatively speaking. This result seems to be viewed in the context of Everton not caring about the FA Cup with all the accompanying gnashing of teeth that this provokes. But actually, Everton picked an almost full-strength team for the game, so how exactly did they show a lack of interest? It seems to me the very fact of their losing was seen as proof of their lack of interest in the competition, as opposed to their losing being because Millwall played well, they had a bad day, etc., this same accusation of not caring was not applied to Arsenal in that Wrexham defeat, for example. So my point is that the football media punditry fans seems to have developed a double standard. We decry the fact that the FA Cup has lost its magic, but we then can't appreciate a giant killing for what it is worth without ascribing a lack of interest to the Premier League team who are beaten by lower league opposition. And in doing so, we eliminate the magic of the result. That's from Eamon, who says, possibly your only listener living in the Philippines. I would like somebody to prove Eamon wrong, but that is Eamon. Thank you, Eamon. It's a really good point. It was a really good point yesterday when we heard it. It's a really good point now. It remains, it it remains, remains excellent. It, its Truly validity excellent. has not diminished in the last 24 hours. I think, I think he's probably right that we, we over-romanticise things that happened before and under-romanticise them now. I wonder if to an extent that's part of the misery of the human condition that we can't really appreciate what we're seeing in front of us in a lot of ways. But <laughs> the other thing that I think is really important is, is the overall kind of structure of how we think about the cup. So in the early 90s, no one, we didn't have this national conversation about does the cup matter anymore. So when giant killings happened, it felt seminal. It felt like a, a major kind of seismic moment. Now, because the way we think about the cup is kind of infused permanently with 
the big teams don't care about it, the big teams don't care about it. We naturally see everything that happens through that prism, and I think that's probably why it happens. But he's right, he's completely right. It may well have been that Arsenal that year, I can't remember what Arsenal did that year. I think the year before, the, the year before, yeah. the year after, they'd probably won. They, yes, because they, weren't they top and 92nd? That was the whole thing about Arsenal against Wrexham. It was the top of the league, and it was the very bottom of the league, and it was the team that was the very bottom of the league that won that game. That was why it was so magical. Yeah, and but the, perhaps they put out a weakened team, perhaps George Graham, who I guess would have been manager, Decided he didn't really care about the FA Cup. They were done for the title or whatever, and and he he jibbed it a little bit. And the, you wonder going back through all those great giant killings whether perhaps they would all stand up to. I mean, did Newcastle put out a full strength side at Hereford in that game that when Ronnie Radford scored? I don't know. I don't think people had the choice really because squads weren't as big. And well, no, but equally now with that Everton Millwall game is quite a good example. That the conditions were hostile, not just the crowd but the weather. And the, kind of the other narrative is oh the big the the fancy down Premier League team didn't fancy it. Maybe the Newcastle team in 1971, I think, when they played Hereford, maybe they didn't fancy it. It looked like a complete field, that pitch. Maybe they turned up and thought, nah, don't like this. It's yeah. perfectly possible. Yeah. Prima donna footballers, even then. The, other, the golf, it, it feels, looking at it from you know a contemporaneous point of view, the golf between the haves and the have-nots is even larger now. So that's why perhaps we almost feel like giant killings should be more infrequent, but they still seem to, to materialise. It, it seems an even greater miracle. And in the context of that Millwall-Everton game, well, that came along at a time when an awful lot of mid-table Premier League sides were getting knocked out of the FA Cup in the third and fourth round. So it was viewed, that result, within the context of those others that came during the same round and in, in the round that preceded it. So therefore, Everton were du- judged by... you know. Everyone was lumped in together a little bit. That ju- that game wasn't judged in isolation. It was judged in the context of how have a dozen Premier League sides already been knocked out of the FA Cup. They, they, it, it gives the message that they're not they, that not that interested. And of course, Everton will always be judged um, against that team of 1995, which won the FA Cup. And if they haven't won the FA Cup since then, then clearly that will always be the mark of which Everton are judged. And to be honest with you, uh, there is an element of that that I think just infects the whole club. And they, they, they feel like they will never quite reach those those incredible standards of those wonderful players who delivered that incredible moment and that great trophy back in 1995. Did Everton win the Cup in 95? I just Googled it. You never hear anyone so, mention it, it so long ago. Uh, I'm finally, surprised um, anybody remembers it. their left-back was Robert. Rory's boss, Andy Das, also sent in an email, which uh, time, unfortunately, does not p- permit us to read out. Don't worry, we didn't yesterday either. Uh, but I wanted to say thank you to him on behalf of Rory Smith's podcast, um, just in case it would adversely affect the relationship with his line manager if I didn't say thank you for that email. It was about Leicester. It was excellent. Uh, menu at gmail.com at menu. Uh, let's chat and let's start by asking this question the 2019 January transfer window what was all that about then? the biggest financial deal Christian Pulisic was one that bought a player who was then immediately sent back to his club until the summer there might have been more eye-catching transactions if clubs could agree on either the option or obligation to buy and deadline day did nothing to increase the intrigue either you knew that when Peter Crouch moving to Burnley was the only story to appear on the back page of more than one newspaper the following morning. And while we're on it, what's with all these loans? Everybody is loaning everybody to everybody else. So, the January transfer window, has it become just a habit or maybe a vehicle for Sky Sports News to navel gaze? And as Steve's better half, Katie, said to him the other day, does it actually work? And if so, for whom does it work? I think it does have a role, the January transfer window. It's become very 
I, I hate to sound like my dad, but it's become very fashionable to say, oh, well, there's no value in the market in January, or it's ridiculous. And or the cups don't mean anything. Or the cups don't mean anything. <laughs> or that we should leave the EU. And it's all this stuff. It's bit, that's almost become a cliche now. The the reaction to the. the the kind of hyperbole and the pizzazz of, of the transfer window. And we know that a lot of fans don't like the January transfer window, a lot of managers don't like it, a lot of, kind of technical directors don't like it. But I think it does have an important function in that uh, it allows teams in a specific period of time, which I think is a good thing. It used to be the case in Britain, of course, and in most of the rest of Europe, that you could sign players whenever you liked during the season until March or early April when there was a natural, when the window slammed shut. Wasn't Gianfranco Zola a kind of a near deadline day signing back in, when it was March? Well, yeah, it, was Mar- it always used to be March the 31st and the reason it existed was perfectly sensible, which was that you didn't want teams buying their rivals' best players during title runnings or relegation battles. So, so this, it, there used to be a time where you could sign a footballer and buy a Cadbury's cream egg. Like within the space of the same week. Essentially, yes. That, Amazing. That was actually, I believe, it was the Cadbury's lobby that led to the abolition of it. Zero sum game, attention. right? One, one or the other. You had yeah. to choose between either a footballer or a Cadbury. Yeah, we couldn't. Like, we couldn't have a. a couldn't we couldn't have both. a time of the year in which both Gianfranco, in which both Gianfranco Zola and Mini Eggs were both for sale. Well, I mean, I don't want to burst your bubble, Steve, but you can get Mini Mini Eggs in the supermarkets literally on the twenty sixth of December. Right now. <laughs> yeah. They appear as soon as the Christmas stuff goes. I can walk into a supermarket. Any supermarket. And buy mini eggs. Yeah. Or their naturally superior cousin, the smarty mini egg. <laughs> I'll be seeing you later. <laughs> the, the reason that existed, that, that transfer deadline, was, as I say, was to prevent teams buying up their rivals' yeah. players in the run-in. And I think, from my, my researching of old newspapers and my vague knowledge of football history, which I've largely forgotten, I think there was a famous example of a team in like the 20s or 30s, who went out and bought lots of players in the last month or so, and they were accused of of buying, I think it was avoiding relegation, um, of buying their, their licence to stay in the first division. And I think that is, it was examples like that that led to the introduction of it. It's a different debate about whether you should abolish transfer windows altogether, yes, except for that deadline, anyway, yeah. and, or whether you should just have it as a free-for-all. I, I quite like the idea of transfer windows, and I think the importance of the January one is it allows teams who have an a natural shortcoming or a player's been injured for a long time or or they've identified a really obvious weakness in their team to strengthen it. So you get teams signing right backs because their right backs have become have been ruled out for the rest of the season or someone covering for someone who's done an ACL or whatever. And I think from that point of view the January transfer window is really useful. You also get players who have been who've lost form or been overlooked by their manager, maybe the manager's changed and they're out of favour, who use it to move to play. And that's fair enough as well. It's it's good for the players to have that chance midway through the campaign to to think, right, it's not working for me here, I need to go. What we're seeing much, much, much less of are the random, let's just sign a midfielder so we've got another midfielder deals. There were a few that went through this January, but they, they seem to be diminishing. And I think that in large part is partly because clubs, have, clubs now believe that there is no value, value to be had in the transfer window, although there is plenty of evidence to the contrary. You can go through, you'd build a, a great all-star eleven of players who signed in January. Um, and partly I think it's because clubs have got better generally, not universally, at planning long term. And that is 
down to the fact that more clubs than ever have te- technical directors or equivalents. But the, the, the long-term planning is all very well because that's done on paper. If you're in a situation where you are a badly run club, even if you think you're planning long-term, you will often make those decisions to try and plaster over a crack or you're mm. desperate and the desperate times have called for desperate measures. This January just gone seems to be that some of those clubs who are either in those uh, desperate measures, take uh, Huddersfield, for example, Huddersfield changed their manager. So that was their decision. So you can kind of take them out of the mix. But there are those kind of in and around the relegation battle, for example, and that's where you often have the injudicious signings. Mm-hmm. And they, they haven't done it. They, they haven't bought those players that you think, hang on, who, from where, for how much? And then they tend to take three months to settle and they're already... Uh, beyond savings. So have those clubs who have previously been in the situation because good clubs, successful clubs are run well. So that would subscribe to exactly what you just said, Rory. But there are those who aren't, but they still haven't seemed to make those mistakes that they have in the past. Yeah, but I think this January just gone really summed up that, that sense that you either need to have incredibly deep pockets or be really, really desperate to try and do significant business in the January window because there's so much posturing there's so many rumours, so much speculation about transfers that might happen. And the percentage of them that come to fruition is, it seems to be getting smaller and smaller the whole time. So you get to this point where it really is just the loaning of players amongst the big clubs who seem to be moving assets around in terms of what's on their balance sheets. So those clubs in the middle of the Premier League, for example, don't seem to be able to bring in a player that might make a big difference to them because they're not desperate enough to take the gamble on the investment and they've got not got enough money swimming around to be able to say, do you know what? We will take Mishi Batshuayi off Chelsea's hands. We are willing to take on the, whatever it is, £150,000 a week wages because we think his impact will be significant enough to justify us breaking our wage structure and disrupting the dressing room. And that was that was the one transfer, perhaps, this January just gone, that really summed up the way that that window has become. Because he, he hasn't played particularly well for Valencia uh, so far this season. Yeah, well, they, quickly, didn't, well, they didn't want to hold on to him, they, did they? They, did, they, they had the option to. But just, just two, two types of loans. They're the kind of loans that big clubs who have a lot of young players will do and that will that would be a merry-go-round as you mentioned Steve they will try the first six months somewhere and then the second six months somewhere else um, but they're also the kind of loans where you are trying to fix a problem um, so given the fact that we've spoken about the young person's loan and the harvesting of young players and attempting to give them um, some sort of experience or if the first experience didn't work out in the first part of the season they try something else given that we've spoken about that before what about that that more senior player who is now being loaned, like Michi Bashwai, um, on one scale, a six-month try-it-and-see, but also you've got Alvaro Morata going to Atletico Madrid on an 18-month loan. 18-month loans seem to be... used to be just Mido going to Spurs, hmm. but, but now it's, it's Alvaro Morata. Higuain goes for, for, for six, six months and then they have agreed a price should he want to go. A couple of deals for Arsenal were meant to be loans, but they couldn't... Just, to, uh, decide, I think it was Perisic, yeah, Perisic was um, one. and one other who, who, who I've forgotten about now, who uh, they wanted to have the obligation to buy rather than the option to buy, and they couldn't agree. The two clubs, Inter and, and Arsenal, couldn't, couldn't agree on the on the whether it would be an obligation or an option. So you've got you've got all these intricacies of attempting to find the right deals, but they all seem to end up with the starting at least. With a loan, why? Why are no clubs deciding that senior players? I can understand Michi Bashwai, who's a bit of a bit of mm. a gamble, and it's Palace who don't want to pay forty million quid or whatever. But those clubs who can afford it, 
and are signing a significant player who will play, why are they not buying them well, in so this January? I think it goes back to what Steve was saying, that there, there is a, an economic factor in why January is quiet. So in, from a British point of view, we, we, don't want to be, we don't want to be overly insular, but then we have to recognise the fact that the money that makes the whole European transfer market tick around comes from the Premier League TV deal, from the ambitions of oil states, and from Barcelona and Real Madrid. That's where the money comes from. That's the money that everyone plays with. And it then trickles down and moves around and what have you. So what the Premier League does has a natural consequence. It's, it's essentially Reaganomics. It, <laughs> y- kind of. Yes. But the Premier League kind of leads the market, effectively. So it is relevant to look at it from a purely English point of view. Because if English clubs don't spend money, nobody else tends to spend money. Um, part of it is the weakness of the pound against the euro. I think that must be a factor. If you look at the Pulisic deal, which cost... We work in dollars at the New York Times. So it was $73 million. Was it 68 million euros? 58. Oh, sorry. 58 million pounds. 58 yes, million yeah. pounds. But 68 or 64 million euros, I think it was. 64 million euros did not used to be 58 million pounds. 64 million euros used to be 50, 45 million pounds because the exchange rate is so bad. I can't, a lot of clubs have said there's no kind of impact from the looming prospect of Brexit. But I can't believe the exchange rate isn't a factor. It must make them think a little bit more about about whether to, whether, to, whether to spend that money. The other in, important thing is this is the short-term cost control measures that the Premier League clubs have, which means they, their wage bill increases are linked to growth in their commercial revenues. So if you, can't, if you don't have a massive boost to, to your commercial revenues, you can't increase your wage bill out of all proportion, which is what limits teams like Arsenal from spending money. So those, those kind of financial realities are relevant to why it's been so slow. And the other thing is, you wonder whether the top, Six, the, the elite clubs in Europe are backing themselves into a corner, not only by acquiring so many players, but by paying them so much. Because a lot of clubs won't be able to afford to take those wages on, even on loan. And they won't want to, they certainly won't want to commit to paying them permanently. And if very few players will move for a wage cut, and that, that's always held up as a sort of symbol of football's greed, but it's perfect. I mean, when, yes. was the la- when was the last time you took a job that paid you less? It just doesn't, it doesn't, ha- I had a friend who did it loads. <laughs> to be fair, but he lives in lives in the states now. He's quite happy. The um, <laughs> that'll be the exchange the, rate. He's married. <laughs> it's a uh, it's you know he kept taking jobs that that were better, but just for some reason paid him less. It was hilarious. Anyway, most people don't take <laughs> jobs. He, he, and you basically that's, that's just, not a promotion. He does understand yeah. that concept. I don't know if Jimmy listens. Jimmy, if you're listening, it was really funny. He laughs about it himself. It's fine. But now <laughs> most pe- most people don't take jobs for pay cuts, and. I don't think there's any reason why players should be any different, to be perfectly honest. So you then get the situation where players need to move to play, but no one can afford to buy them. They won't take a pay cut. And their own club has this sky-high asking price that's been inflated by the Neymar deal and the knock-on yeah. effects of that. So it's kind of they're all kind of pricing the market to a standstill. And the answer in that situation is a loan, because it reduces the risk for the buying club, because they're not putting yeah. as much money forward. It means that the selling clubs, who are often running effectively player trading businesses as well as first teams can bring in six, seven million quid, nine million quid, whatever it might be for the loan yeah. fee for this season or next season. And and then when the player comes back, if the player comes back, they can then charge that again. So you're basically getting a, a regular kind of income from one from one asset. Or if the player does really well and either the the host club wants to sign them or somebody else comes in, they might be able to sell them for a bit more. So and that's the benefit of the loan model. We had Reaganomics, now we've got Airbnb on players, essentially. That's how it's working. You've got the player and then you make some money off them every week. Or, yeah, that's the, from, the, um, from the parent yeah. club's attitude. That the, the other side of it is that, I'm not sure what the parallel is here, but basically by 
if you've got a choice of you've got a player you don't want, either they sit in your reserves or on your bench and don't play and get unhappy, their value drops. Or you send them out on loan to somebody, not a rival, yeah. and they might do really badly, in which case they come back, you start again. Or if they do really well, they suddenly become quite desirable and maybe their price goes up. So in the yeah. summer, you might be able to sell them on for instead of 15 million for 20 million. Yeah. Batshuayi is a great example of that because of course he went to Dortmund. Yes, he got injured right towards the end of He started the spell quite well, there. didn't he? Yeah, he started really well but but tailed off, got injured uh, just but got himself fit for the World Cup. Obviously, he went to Valencia, didn't work out for him there. And there was all sorts of clubs being rumored with taking him on loan including others in the Premier League before he ended up at Crystal Palace where as we say they've obviously decided it's worth the 150,000 pound a week investment to simply give opposition players somebody else to kick other than Wilf Zahar. <laughs> so th- that, there's that sort of situation. But Palace aren't going to pay the £50 million transfer fee that surely Chelsea would require and take on a player who earns, what, in excess of £8 million a year. So Chelsea are protecting their investment, but recouping some of the cost of having that investment on their books and perhaps will live with the reality of well, at the moment, he's worth £50 million to us. But if we manage to get a load of loan fees and get him off our wage bill several times over the course of two seasons, well, then we might in a couple of years' time be willing to sell him for 25 or £30 million because, because we'll, 20, still, yeah. we'll still get that £50 million figure one way or another. And even if it doesn't work out, and I think this must be part of the thinking of the big clubs, even if it doesn't work out at Palace in the Batshuayi case, he will go back to Chelsea and they won't, as Steve said, they won't be like, right, well, he, he did badly at Palace, we'd better sell him as quickly as we can. They don't look at it like that anymore. They will look at him as a long-term investment that will return that will return money on, on what they've paid. So it, it worked with Lukaku. Yes, well, it worked with Lukaku eventually as they sold him to Everton, but even if Batshuayi doesn't go on to have that same kind of profile of career, it might be that he goes out on loan to, to Spain again or to mm. Germany next summer for another £7 million loan fee. And then the summer after that, he might go out on loan again. And suddenly, they've recouped their initial output. And at some point, he will either leave the club, or which may, which may be a long way down the line. Matej Delatch, who was the keeper, who for, at one point was Chelsea's longest-serving player, had spent 10 years on loan from Chelsea at different clubs. And I mean, whether he got a testimonial, I don't know. He left in the summer. But he'd been a Chelsea player for 10 years and never, I think, played once for them because he'd just been on loan. And they, presumably with Delatch, had been getting small loan fees here and there from different clubs in Belgium and Denmark and wherever he was going. And then you looked at someone like Lucas Piazon, who's, I think, still on loan from Chelsea. Signed for them in 2012, has played, according to Wikipedia, which I, I don't know if you know about, it's a very useful little website, uh, played for them once. He's played for Malaga, Vitesse, Eintracht Frankfurt, Reading, Fulham, and now Kiovo, where he's not played, even though they're uh, bottom of Serie A. Just league stats on Wikipedia. That's just league stats. Well the, um, but I don't think Kiovo overly troubled by European yeah. Cup competition. <laughs> Kiovo flying in the Champions League. <laughs> the, um, just, just struggling domestically. So, but, the, yeah, so, so there are extremes yeah. to that. Where there, there are extremes, but what, what that proves is that it, this is kind of an open-ended process that Chelsea at no point seem to think. And it's not, we should hasten to add, that it's not just Chelsea who do this. At no point do they seem to think, as we in the media and we as fans generally do, well, that transfer's not worked out, they'll have to sell it. Or he'll, he'll go on loan and then surely he'll leave in the summer. It doesn't work like that anymore. They will look at someone like Batshuayi potentially as a very, very lucrative investment who they can keep renting out to people yeah. for 7 million quid, yeah. or whatever it is, for as long as possible. There's your Airbnb analogy. Well, I remember a time, you know, we, we think going back 15 years or so when, you know, Manchester United's youth system was churning out the largest volume of players in terms of English football. And the theory always was that United only needed to sell one of those players 
every year for a decent sum, you know, one million quid, for example, for effectively the academy to pay for itself. So the likes of City and Chelsea and, and other clubs who loan out large volumes of players have simply taken this on a stage further. That One assumes that the money that the players that they develop and also those that they bring in on large wages, not only is loaning them out, helping to fund operations behind the first team level, but they're also able to then use that money to invest in the first team squad if they do want to go out and buy a Christian Pulisic for 50 million quid during the January transfer window. They are able to do that because of all the sort of the tentacles they've got out with other European clubs where they're lending players to each, you know, in isolation, each deal is probably not worth a huge amount of money to them. But if you've got 30 or 40 players spread across, across the continent, that might enable you to go out and buy two really, really good players once every 18 months. City are working on the same principle as they did before they were taken over and, and had loads of money. Yeah. They are working now on an idea that they will try and generate some revenue like Chelsea do. The revenue that they are selling, they sold uh, Robin Matondo to Schalke. Schalke for about £11 mm-hmm. million. Pounds. That's another £11 million. Pounds, and it, it helps to fund the academy. That's what the academy did when they made no money and had no money. They were continually churning out players and they were selling them for not yeah. nearly as much money. But, I mean, the but that was cost- going straight back into the academy. That was the whole principle of what the academy was doing. They were self-funding and they were continuing to do that because they had enough success in bringing players through. And that was the business model. And it's yeah. just an extension of that now, but everything is obviously the, mushroom. The difference is that what they're doing now is not using players that they have developed themselves to finance the academy to make it self-sustaining so that once every 10 years when you get the talent who's good enough to get into your first team that you've got a framework that they can thrive in what they're doing now is using academy players and players they have signed as much younger players yes much younger players to sell them on or loan them out frequently to plough that money back into the first team so that they can meet FFP that's basically what the yes, entire idea is. Yes, of course, is. of course, yeah. So th- but that's, that, that's where it appears on the balance sheet. It, it, yes, it, that, that is true. No, if you but sell the, the principle remains the same, that they are seeking to generate revenue from the young players yes. that don't make the first team. I, yes, which is completely fair yeah. enough and is part of football and that's how academies have always mm. worked. The idea is that if you, if you can produce loads of right-backs who are worth 500 grand, then you sell a couple of those. I don't know why you're pitching on right-backs. But it's because Nathaniel Klein went to Bournemouth when Bournemouth needed a right-back because of Simon Francis. Yeah, because that's the, that is the archetypal... Yeah. January deal. It makes sense for he everyone needed, he did. A- apart from Liverpool who now have no right back. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, well, they have a very offside right back uh, every so often. Every so often. Um, and an injured one, which, yes. which again... So Klein, Klein, Klein wasn't playing at Liverpool and Bournemouth yeah, needed a, a right back. A right back. So, so, they, so there you go. And also it meant he got to annoy Neil Warnock into the bargain, so everyone went. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> the, I forgot about that part. <laughs> but the, I think the difference now maybe is, is not only the industrial scale of it, and you are talking about huge volumes of players moving around, it's the fact that so, so many have been loaned, which is interesting, but also the fact that that teams are no longer signing players because they think they're good enough to play for them. You have to question whether Chelsea signed Batshuayi because they genuinely believed he would play for them as a first-team player. Belief or hope? Did they think hope he, maybe. Did, did they think he might, yes. so he was worth the investment? Did they think that he definitely would, but he's been a disappointment? Or did they think, no, but we can see that there is a market for a player like this across Europe, so we cannot lose on this deal? It and can that, be everything. Yeah. It and, can be everything. And that is ultimately the situation we find ourselves in and one that we probably have to accept because I can't see why anybody would try and put a stop to it is that do we just have to accept that the big clubs, the really super rich clubs are going to own amongst them a majority of the highest calibre players but that as a consequence they can't play them all so they will be distributed amongst 
mid-table clubs across Europe and ultimately those clubs get good players mm. without having and they don't mind to take on the them. burden yeah. of owning them. And or it, paying for the transfer fee to get them permanent. Because the likes of Chelsea will think, and not, not to pick on Chelsea, there are plenty of others who do it, say this is worth a £50 million investment in case it pays off and to prevent that player going to one of our rivals because he's if he's with us, we can control where he plays. There was no way Chelsea would loan Batshuayi out to Tottenham, for example, which was muted at one point during the January transfer window, but they were perfectly happy for him to go to West Ham or Crystal Palace. That's a really interesting point, and I've not thought of it like that before, that that perhaps it's a it's a mechanism of redistribution of wealth in the in the new environment in which we the post Neymar environment in which we find ourselves. That this is the way that the market will go. And I apologise to any listener who is cleverer than me and who therefore had, occurred, had thought of this months <laughs> ago. But I wonder if it's almost fairer because it means, as you say, that mid-table clubs have access temporarily to talent that they could not, in any kind of environment, whatever age of football, have hoped to have afforded. But the flip side of that is that Mishibatshuayi would be available in the market to someone else at potentially a lower price if he wasn't owned by Chelsea. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And also, his future would be controlled by the club who is currently paying his wages or employing him or having him play for them when, in fact, it's not. The, the, the decision is made by Chelsea. So if, for example, Crystal, it goes well at Crystal Palace, Crystal Palace might not be able to make the decision themselves on whether they continue to have Michy Bashwai. It could be that Chelsea say, no, you can't have him anymore. They can arbitrarily say, yeah. you don't get him you can't. For, for whatever reason, and they might be legitimate or not. And it keeps those mid-table clubs down because every year they have to yeah. replenish yeah. So their... if, if Crystal Palace start to do well and become a Spurs, who wouldn't have got Michy Bashwai in the January just gone, they will say, no, Crystal Palace, you can't have Michy Bashwai. Yeah. Your record goal scorer in the Premier League because you had that season where you scored 60. But in a hot run of form, what Steve says is quite right, that if, if there was some sort of mechanism that prevented the elite yeah. clubs acquiring that many players, which I think FIFA, to, FIFA, to be fair, are discussing the idea of banning or limiting, limiting the number yeah. of players you're allowed to have out on loan. I am sure there are ways around that. The lesson of football history is there are ways around it if you have enough money. That if that if you if Chelsea weren't allowed to look at Michi, Michi Bachuai and think, oh, he could he could do a job for us, or we can loan him out, um, then perhaps yeah, Palace would have been able to afford the twelve or fifteen million quid, whatever yeah. it was that they. That, no, it was a lot more than that. I think it was thirty. Was it not thirty three million they paid for Bachuai? Yes. Yes. Yeah, um, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah, but if uh, you know, so Chelsea signed him from Marseille. He was at Standard Liège before that. Those are good clubs, aren't they? It's not as though he's been plucked from obscurity by Chelsea. It's not as though Crystal Palace or West Ham weren't capable of scouting a centre forward at Marseille and making an offer for him. But the minute that a, a United, a City, a Chelsea, an Arsenal, or you know PSG, Real Madrid, or Barcelona on the continent come in for a player at Marseille, that is driving the price up. If Chelsea are interested, he becomes £30, £35 million, pounds, doesn't he? If Crystal Palace are interested, maybe that fees £20 million pounds and the, the wage expectations of the player and his agent aren't so high. So it makes him more attainable if we don't live in an environment in which half a dozen clubs are able to monopolise the market. Talking about the variety of loans, Andre Schürrle. He's at Fulham on a two-year loan. So yeah. what, what is the difference between a two-year loan and just a purchase on a two-year contract, apart from the fact you are not paying up front? For, and you may well pay a loan fee, and I expect they have. Yeah. But what's the difference? What, what is, is there any tangible difference between paying a loan fee up front for a player who is with you for two years? You pay his wages, you've paid the fee up front, and you get him for the, the length of that contract, which is two years. 
but again, it's not as long a term commitment, and you're you're not taking on the the full burden of responsibility. You know, ultimately, I suppose. So if he has a bad injury, he goes back. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there could be a get-out, couldn't there, after probably more likely 12 months than six. But, you know, if Andre Schürrle was injured after three months of the season, you know, Fulham would only have to pay his wages through until the summer and then he'd be sent back to his parent club. So, yeah, you'd, you'd imagine they're only taking them on for two years with a, with a break clause at some point. Because, again, the parent club might want to be able to recall a player midway through if he was doing really well. The, the two-year loan thing isn't... Entirely unique. I think you see it a little bit more on the continent. Uh, Luka Jovic at Eintracht Frankfurt was initially on a two-year loan from Benfica and uh, Gabriel Barbosa, Gabby Gol at Inter. When it didn't work out for him there, he went off on loan, I think, initially. Back to Brazil, no? Uh, yeah, he ended up back in Brazil, but I think there was two-year loans muted, yeah. but I think he spent some time at Benfica. So I, I well, suppose there are clubs like Benfica who take chances on players and end up making more, potentially more money on the deal if they send them out on loan for a couple of years, get the loan fee, that player does well at, at a higher level than the Portuguese league and they are then either able to recall them and sell them on or, or sell them to the club where they've been on loan for a greater fee than they'd have got two years ago. And well, Was Fernando Torres not initially a two-year loan to Atletico? Is that right? From Chelsea, yeah. Oh, well, there you go. So. And and so we bring it round in a cyclical fashion. Um, just before we finish, um, the conversation uh, we started by saying about how January transfer windows become a bit of a habit, um, perpetuated, no doubt, by the uh, fact that it has been interesting in the past. You mentioned Fernando Torres, Rory, that day, that what January day. transfer deadline day with him and Andy Carroll. Last year, it was really exciting because uh, Philippe Coutinho went to Barcelona and with that money, uh, Liverpool bought Virgil van Dijk. So they spent something like £430 million pounds, uh, Premier League clubs uh, last year. That's pounds, sorry, Rory, not dollars. Don't know what it is but in it, dollars. But that it's proves about 440. That, proves, <laughs> that proves that it it still happens, well, and even though that if you look at the graph, it was going up, up slowly, slowly. And then there was a massive one and then yeah. it's got back down again um, to kind of 2012-2013. But what, what that shows is that when that there can be value in January and that January can be an intelligent time to move. Does Arsenal signed Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang in January as well? Nemanja Vidic years before was a January signing. Patrice Evra was a January yes, signing. Yes, they came at the same time. Uh, on a slightly lower level, Martin Sturtle was a January signing. So it does happen. Serbian and Slovak defenders, get them in January. Great time to buy them. The um, Whilst the sale's on. But I, I wonder whether... I don't, I'd like to think Maybe and all kind of Twitter is no great. Certainly doesn't suggest that this is the case. But I wonder whether football, to some extent, has got over its kind of transfer fixation, and that there is now. Steve mentions clubs like like Benfica. That there are clubs that are are making money or existing only by trading, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. But I wonder whether what we're seeing is a is a new kind of iteration of the market, almost where there are more loans, where there are certain clubs that have that are talent hubs, effectively, and they then spread it out to the rest of the game. Now that might not be a good thing, but it does seem to me that that's the way it's going because prices for elite talent are so high, only if you can afford them. So are our views on the last January transfer window being lacking of interest simply because we have high expectations because we happen to watch a sports news channel very regularly and we tend to get taken down a bit of a garden path about how amazing it might be, how amazing it already has been when perhaps it hasn't been. And so because of that self-perpetuation, something is always going to disappoint us if it just is normal. And that might have been normal for the last four weeks. It's not just... Sky Sports News, it's the entire media because transfers transfers drive interest, they drive clicks, they drive they drive content. I think that transfers are good for the media and the media therefore makes a lot out of transfers and I've done that before and, and it's fair enough. Like people like reading about transfers. That's why every club 
clubs who do not brief about transfer information will run on their own websites a media watch page containing transfer rumours, which lends them, in the eyes of quite a lot of foreign publications, legitimacy, because they their journalists will see that and think, well, hang on, Man City are saying this story is right because it's on their website, so it must be true. And well, it's, it's not. They're just, they're, the clubs are just like the BBC. They are just trying to get the clicks. That's all they're doing. They don't want you clicking on the Mail or the Guardian or, or yeah. whatever. They want you reading their website and they want your eyeballs on, on their site. So I think the other thing is, we, we, we as with everything, we remember the highlights. We remember the Carol Suarez, Torres Day. We remember Berbatov and Rubinho. We don't remember that in both of those windows, my guess is like 29 of the days were really dull. And by the time the Torres thing came round, it had been trailed for about a week and Suarez was and is, Suarez is listed as a Liverpool signing on transfer deadline day but that was arranged two weeks before I remember writing the story not exclusively obviously uh, <laughs> the, the, um, but that had, been, that had been done two weeks beforehand Carroll was well known and it was the, but Berbatov and Rubinho were genuine shocks but most of that summer will have been really boring. We just, we, we've convinced ourselves, in the same way with Mourinho press conferences, there was this idea that Mourinho was always really entertaining in press conferences. He wasn't. He was boring most of the time. He'd just occasionally come out with a proper zinger. But the that same, was true of Sir Alex Ferguson as well. Yeah, and it, it? but it's, we, we remember the highlights. It, and it's the same with, transfer, with transfers. We, we, remember, we remember those transfer windows have been our absolute classic transfer windows. They weren't. They, they weren't. For most, it was just one day that made it. And what we're seeing now is maybe that that day happens a bit less often than it used to. And, and we get for, we get fed this constant narrative of how exciting the transfer window is, how tremendous transfer deadline day is. And it really isn't. A couple of players that you'd forgotten about have moved on loan. That's basically the extent of it. I think Ed thinks we should finish. Well, absolutely. And we will do. And That's why um, he's clattering stuff out of the kitchen. Some healthy perspective, I think, from both Ed. He hates transfers. The three people. He wants to stop talking about it. It's over. It's February. He's very pro-homegrown talent. <laughs> well, he is. quite right. In fact, he's growing some homegrown talent right now at his little kitchen. Um, in lieu of a soccer story then before we go, which if we had one today, I think uh, it would come from Andy and it would be very much a tale of woe uh, because of his illness. We will, in honour of our stricken former left-back, mark the occasion of his 50 birthday in our own very small way before we do it properly upon his return from the shock of reaching his sixth decade or more accurately the shock of uh, reaching uh, just a little bit of a cold he's mentioned before how he shares his birthday with a couple of pretty impressive footballers I think it was this time last year that the names of Cristiano Ronaldo and Carlos Tevez rolled off his tongue all too easily for someone who clearly hadn't brought it up over and over again for some sort of annual reflected glory but Steve has been doing some digging and it seems chinch might be on to something. Well, I was on the train the other day and might cast my mind back a, a year or so to when Chinch was mentioning these illustrious footballers that shared his birthday. And uh, others had got in touch with us as well to, to point out. You mentioned Carlos Tevez and Cristiano yeah. Ronaldo. Neymar. Neymar Another as well. player who shares Andrew Hinchcliffe's birthday of the 5th of February. And I thought, well, are there any others? And it turns out that there's something mystical, something magical about the 5th of February. It must be, it must be an Aquarian thing. The quick-thinking, decisive mind of an Aquarian. Oh, so speaks that an makes Aquarian. You, <laughs> makes you so... Uh, well, yeah, unfortunately, I was born 24 hours too soon. Otherwise, the course of football history could be very, very different. <laughs> You've already got one famous wife. You can't have another <laughs> well, famous, famous wife. Famous sporting mother. wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, but I'd have completed the job. <laughs> it must be something about that. If you have a, if you have a child born on the 5th of February dash out and buy them a pair of football boots because there is something special about the date. Another genius footballer born on the 5th of February, Georgie Hadji. So we've got Neymar, Carlos Tevez and Cristiano Ronaldo up front. 
Had you providing the creativity in midfield, we need a little bit of grit to go alongside him. How about the former Spurs player, Mickey Hazard? Ah, Mickey Hazard. Yes, the original Hazard. <laughs> uh, Adnan Yanazai is just going to squeeze into the midfield. That Perhaps hasn't quite had the career that we would have anticipated for him, but he's more than good enough to get into our 5th of February 11. Things are a little bit trickier defensively. We'll get on to the fullbacks um, for obvious <laughs> reasons reveal. shortly. Big reveal. Uh, in the end, decided, well, Cesare Maldini... He definitely justifies inclusion at the heart of our defence. We could have had veteran Chorluca there, but I think bearing in mind what we remember of his time in the Premier League, I'm going to farm him out <laughs> to right back. Because fullbacks, as we have already discussed, don't, don't really And allow it. Stefan de Vrij to, uh, to take pride of place alongside Maldini in the heart of the defence. And then, of course, we get to left back. There is the obvious choice. There is the man who had a decisive involvement in a incredibly tight FA Cup final during the 1990s. A man who has dined out on his contribution to that famous victory for nearly three decades since. But do you know what? It was a tough call, but I've decided that Lee Martin doesn't <laughs> quite get the nod ahead of Giovanni Van Bronckhorst, who was also born on the 5th of February. So Andrew Hinchcliffe is... Only the third best left back born <laughs> on that get on date the bench. doesn't even doesn't get, get on, on the, bench. the bench. Chinch, if you were here, you could have pleaded your case, but you're not, so you don't make it into the 18. Uh, in goal, that was the hardest, by the way, to find. Petr Kostelnik, who won three caps for the Czech Republic, he is our designated goalkeeper. I suppose if Chinch wants to uh, argue the toss with Petr Kostelnik. He can play in goal if he wants. And we have a manager for this team? Well, of course we have a manager for this team. Famously born on the 5th of February, Sven Joran Eriksson. He will motivate that team uh, incredibly well. Uh, so Chinch, uh, salt in the no doubt already significant wounds uh, with the illness that you are suffering on your 50th birthday. But uh, happy birthday nonetheless. Uh, and thank you to Steve. We'll be uh, heading off now into the sunset and not to a 50th birthday uh, party. There was a balloon. There were presents. There was a card. There's a cake, and it's all just going to be left in the dumpster. Uh, but we leave you with a reminder of how to get in touch at SetPieceMenu on Twitter or SetPieceMenu at gmail.com, facebook.com slash menu for all your birthday messages for Andrew George Hinchcliffe, 50 this week. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, thank you to Steve and to Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Should mention that Lee Martin scored the only goal in the 1990 FA Cup final replay for Manchester United against Crystal Palace is that if that is not a name that is familiar to you but I think scoring a goal in an FA Cup final is is a greater achievement than a left back as a left back than just basically being on the pitch yes, when the winning goal was Roy scored Keane out of the game, uh, for Everton in 1995 it's a very good goal by Lee Martin as well Rory off mic are you happy with that team yes thank you very much for your contribution Ed off mic are you happy with that team Who's going to do an elephant impression? Steve, can you do one? (coughs) Rory? (coughs) Very effeminate elephants coming out here. (coughs) You can only be very, very... Oh, there we go. That's, That's it done properly.